0: Okay, this morning let's take our Bibles today and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are looking today again in with the ten uh, at the ten commandments and what they say to us for today. Also, we have been looking at um, we are on the seventh commandment this morning, and so we'll be looking at verse number 14, and then of course other passages of Scripture that help us to understand. Uh, these commandments in other parts of the Word of God. And so today, let's just look at this passage quickly, and let me read it as we um, continue on Exodus chapter 20. And I'll read from verse 1 through verse 14. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, Your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to those thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor And do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we continue to look at your word, look at these commandments that have timeless and universal principles embedded in them, I pray, Lord, that we would put ourselves in the equation that we would not think that this is for someone else, but it's for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would take what it says to heart and practice it in our very behavior, in our very thinking. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, we would learn how to live godly lives and holy lives, lives that are not perfect, but lives that are moving towards righteousness and putting the things that we do know into practice. So Lord, increase our knowledge and make us into Your image, as we know the Spirit of God. Job, His job will do that. And I pray, Lord, today we want to submit and bow before Your Word. Use it in our our own lives, Lord, to honor Your name. And I pray, in Christ. I ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture. We say that we're brought face to face with the realities of God's plan for marriage and also for personal morality as God intended it. We are all aware that moral standards are laughed at or ignored uh, by a majority of, of people in the world. However... High standards of personal purity is what God has intended for his people. Over 3,000 years ago, the people of Israel had, a, had to face the kind of situation we face today. They are going to settle in the land of Canaan where their neighbor, neighbors are not, not, notorious for their complete lack of morality and purity. Culturally, the pagan religions did not demand sexual purity of its devotees. The gods and goddesses were grossly immoral. The laws God gave to the Israelites touched the areas of their lives that he knew would or could be most affected by association with the wicked culture. So these commandments really are for us today because they are timeless and universal, and they do fulfill uh, practical principles that we can implement every single day of our lives. Now, it's uh, very clear that we are living in a kind of a pornographic society, that uh, our culture is really bombarding us with images, uh, design out, to capture our lusts, the medium of TV and commercials and movies and YouTube and social media. Internet sites are designed to figure out your habits, uh, to track uh, where you go on the site, what you buy, and they get to know you in a way. And they start advertising uh, certain things to you. And a matter of fact, marketing professionals understand this. They capitalize on it. And one area they capitalize on is pornography. They get that out to people. So our nation has been really steeped in, in, a, in a revolution in what, uh, and, and we have been losing a, uh, very badly in this revolution. We have been uh, thrust from uh, the 60s into a sexual revolution that has moved into a homosexual revolution that has ushered us, our whole nation, into a revolution of insanity. All right. That's where we live today. We live in the realm of insanity, and so the Bible is very clear on that. When that happens, we see that in Romans it says that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to do impurity. That God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which was unnatural, and of course. This whole thing of insanity is that there's insanity on the street level where the Bible says in Romans, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. And they became haters of God. And then, of course, that insanity trickled right up to government. So we have a revolution of insanity at the governmental level. And why is that? Because the Bible does tell us uh, that they do the same thing and they give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So that's where we are today. We are living in that realm and we are challenged by the word of God to live according to the way God wants us to live. And so as we come to this seventh commandment and that 's the commandment we 're looking at this morning. The seventh commandment is a commandment that is uh, really brushed aside today uh, it 's not really practiced at all in our our culture to any extent, and yet, for the church, the church is to keep this the church is is given the mandate to make sure that in the church things are going on that honor God, and so we see in this particular commandment that the, prince, the principle revealed in the seventh commandment where it says you shall not commit adultery is that principle of, uh, of course, we do know it's, straight, it's a straightforward command. Uh, you can even feel the force of it when you read it, even though it's so short. And it impresses immediately upon your mind and your conscience that God disapproves of every kind of adultery, every kind of sexual deviant behavior, every kind of it he is against. And it is not the way he designed things. So the principle here in Scripture is that we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is this to honor the marriage institution by remaining faithful to one's own spouse and by respecting the marriages of other people. And of course, again, very clearly, you shall not commit adultery. Now let me first say that God designed you as a sexual being and placed his dynamic creative force within you. It should be reasonable that the designer, the maker, would not leave you or I without direction regarding the powerful sexual machinery he has placed within us. Also secondly, let me remind you that the designer has given you precautions. And restrictions found in his instruction manual called the Bible, that God is for you and I in this matter. And he is not trying to make your life miserable, but actually wonderful. Since God created man's sex hunger, God plans for man's sex hunger to be satisfied by the reuniting of woman to man as it occurs in marriage. So we all have been exposed to many different ideas and views concerning sex, love, and marriage. Society has loudly and frequently said everyone must make their own personal decision concerning this matter. This is true. But according to whose agenda will one, make their decision? Are you going to view your sex drive as simply another biological phenomena, like hunger or thirst, and then feed it the way you think it should be fed? Or is it something far more meaningful and wonderful than that? Will you consider your sex urges as something to be satisfied now, or something to be Diverted until later, in other words, until you get married, if you get married. Whose advice will you seek and follow in regard to your sexual conduct? Your parents? Or the kids that you grew up with? The neighbors on your block? Or maybe some actors and musicians you should get your cues from? Better, we should get our direction from the Lord God. And the reason why is because he is the designer and the architect of the marriage institution. So you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is literally sexual intercourse with someone who is married to another. It was considered to be such a breach of of faith in marriage, and so horrendous that it was thought to pollute the culture. So serious did God consider this sin that it was punishable by death in the Mosaic law. If you take your Bibles right there and you turn to Leviticus, you'll see that in Leviticus, the Bible says this, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10, it says there, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So in other words, we we see the seriousness that is coming through Scripture to us concerning this matter. And you know, I think that as I read the Ten Commandments and, and as as I was growing up, as a, a really a, a good boy and a Catholic boy, but not a, a person who was introduced to anything in Scripture that would, uh, you know, remind me of these things. Yes, I did know the Ten Commandments, but it's not like it came to mind, you know. And I wish somebody sat down and said something to me about what the Bible says, about what God thinks about the sexual union and marriage and all those kinds of things. You know, you basically just heard the news, listen, wait till you're marriage. married, right? That would be generally the what people would say. Well, that, of course, is better than nothing, but it doesn't explain what I ought to be doing or what I ought to be thinking or what I ought not to be doing. And so those are the kind of things that when I come to Scripture and I see how, weighty these things are as we read them in the Word of God, like in Deuteronomy 22, uh, 22, notice what it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman, and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So God made sure that his people knew that this kind of activity was evil. It was wicked, it was something that would pollute the culture, it would pollute society, it would destroy families, and so therefore god 's people were to make sure those things were taking place were not taking place and uh, and they were following what the word of god said so this the seventh commandment was put really very simply by a man named D. Stewart who wrote a commentary on the book of Exodus, and this is what he said. He said very, very simply, no one is allowed to have sex with any other, any married person except his or her spouse, and no married person is allowed to have sex with anyone other than his or her, her spouse. That is very clear and very simple, and that's the way it ought to be. That should be clear in our minds. So keep in mind, as we consider the seventh commandment, that adultery suggests the wrongness of all sexual impurity indeed in thought, and in word. And remember, Jesus raised the bar in Matthew where he says it's not just adultery, the act, but if you look upon a woman to think to have adultery with you, With her or with him you have committed that sin already in your heart before the act in other words God judges sin not by the fruit on the branches but on what's going on inside the heart because that's where it all comes from and so we see that it is a sin against God it divides what God has united in marriage one man and one woman and any other cultural construct is wrong. God alone has the authority to define marriage and determine the proper use of sexuality. So again, adultery is sexual unfaithfulness of a married person, voluntarily, voluntary sexual intercourse of a married man with another than his wife, by a married woman with another than her husband. So Christians know from the word of God beyond a doubt that God's standard of right and wrong is very clear when it comes to sexuality. Adultery destroys the holy oneness and the harmony that marriage possesses. It is a sin against more than one person and against God. It wrongs the innocent. The whole family is hurt. And often children are left victims of a broken home. And, of course, they visualize and understand a wrecked marriage. So they conclude, well, if that happened, and if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm not going to get married at all. I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's what they conclude often. So the testimony of the Christian church is maligned when it happens along with the nation being weakened. So it weakens at every level, and it destroys, finally. And yes, the sin of adultery hurts those who are guilty of it. King David wrote, after committing adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, he wrote in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Even the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the Bible, says the person who commits adultery lacks sense and destroys his own soul, where it says in the word of God, the one who commits adultery with, with a woman is lacking sense. He who dis who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. So when sex is taken outside the marriage, the fire of sexual passion will consume and destroy even the most precious things in one's life. So adultery can be committed in and outside the family unit which pollutes the whole community, and it is coupled with serious consequences. Now, right there in Exodus 20, if you're still there, notice in verse number 10, I read that again, but we see adultery in verse 10 as outside the immediate family unit. It says there, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall be surely put to death. And then you see that adultery can be committed inside the immediate family unit, where it says in verse number 11 of Leviticus 20, if there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. All right, and then also it turns into it's a it's a wicked spiral when sex is out of control because in verse number 12 it's talking about incest that would be sexual intercourse intercourse between persons related by blood or marriage where it says here in verse number 12 if there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law both of them shall surely be put to death they have committed incest Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And then in verse number 13, it spirals into homosexuality. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. And then, of course, verse 14 can be referring to polygamy, and then... Verse number 15 and 16, bestiality, that is people having unnatural sexual relationships with animals, and then the whole thing of pedophilia that we are aware of today in the world, that a person having actually an erotic desire of an adult to have sexual relations with a child. Did you know that sex trafficking is the second fastest growing growing, uh, criminal enterprise in the world, just under drug trafficking. It is a serious problem. And you know there's got to be demand for it, right? You know where the demand comes from? The good old United States. Because we're free, right? And when we're free, and we leave God out of things, and there's no more structure in our society for morality or for uh, just ethics, then everything goes wacko and crazy. And all you have to do is turn on the news and find out what's going on in Washington, and you say, that's not even common sense. That's right. It's insanity. There's no common sense when there is insanity. And so the Bible is clearly teaching us that that our Lord God is against this kind of activity within relationships of human beings. Now, that brings me to two things that really have to do with uh, when a marriage is ratified. This this day that we vowed our love before our friends and God above. The day when somebody gets married, two things are going on to ratify that covenant. Number one, a verbal oath, a solemn promise of the vows made before God and witnesses will be kept. And then a second thing is of the ratifying sign. Uh, This is found in really the book by Kevin DeYoung on the Ten Commandments the ratification sign, the private act of sexual consummation which signs and seals the covenant. So how are we to hold the marriage institution in high regard, which really comes out of the seventh commandment? So we must understand and accept what God's word says about marriage, then maintain what it says no matter how much pressure. That we receive from the world around us that's trying to conform us and press us into its mold and get us to think like they think, we cannot think like they think. We must think in a way that honors the Lord. And so this morning, I want to direct your attention to a passage of scripture in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number four, where that in the context of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 it's still the context of running the Christian race that's the end of Hebrews all right and the, remember the Christian race is not a uh, it is not a sprint it is a marathon race right it's not a matter of whether you're first it's a matter of finishing right some some takes lo- some take longer than others but we ought to be finishing the race in a way that honors the Lord and see so here is the here is the uh the principles given to the people and of course the Jewish audience there who uh were on the brink some of them coming to trust Christ as Lord and Savior and some of them not coming all the way over to trust the Lord as their savior and so he's still giving the nation the the principles on how to live in this world. And so there are really four main things in order to hold marriage in high honor. And the first one would be this, that marriage, to maintain a correct mindset concerning marriage, that the word of God is exhorting gathered believers to maintain the correct mindset, the correct thinking on marriage. And what is that mindset to be? The mindset is to be a biblical mindset. Marriage, in other words, it says, notice in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Let me just stop right there. So in that, in thinking of that, we see that the marriage bed, there's two words in this verse. It's the word honorable, and that means it's it it's valuable, that it, marriage is precious, it's, it's uh, costly, and it's to be respected. That's the mindset that we are to hold when it comes to the marriage institution. And then the second word there is the word undefiled. That means it's to be pure, it's to be unsullied, it's to be unstained. That's how we are to look at marriage. So there are always different mindsets in regard to marriage. There is the mindset of no marriage at all. all, right? People just doing what they think is right and avoiding the contract and the commitment in marriage. Well, that's foreign to the creator's design. And then there's asceticism, uh, the ascetic mindset, where they consider, you know, those people who become monks and they go and live on top of a telephone pole, all right? Those are the people that think marriage is really not honorable at all, but actually dirty and defiling and filthy, all right? And so that they're they have a kind of a Gnostic type of mindset where they think the body's dirty and the spirit is good, and if the spirit and the body come together, then the body defiles the spirit, and that's the kind of thinking. And then, of course, there's the same-sex mindset. They think that they are uh, right, but they are wrong, that two people of the same sex could be married. Well, that's foreign to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, the Word of God. God says that's an abomination. And then, of course, there is the biblical mindset. And in the biblical mindset, there is nothing dishonorable in marriage or defiling in the, in the marriage relationship. Married, the marriage bed, and that's just a euphemism for sexual intercourse, is pure and holy before God. Now, remember, the marriage marriage itself is not a Christian institution. It is a creation institution. So these mandates go out from the creator to the creatures that are to obey that and live it out in the culture in which they live. And, of course, the standard for the church goes up. So what does the Bible say about marriage? That marriage is a divine institution. And contrary to some contemporary opinion, marriage is not a human institution that is Has evolved over centuries to meet the needs of society. Marriage was God's idea and it is a good idea. Marriage also is to be regulated by divine instruction. Since God made marriage, it stands to reason that it must be regulated by his commands, which we're looking at this morning. In marriage, Both husband and wife stand beneath the authority of the Lord. It even says in Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. In other words, if if you're going to build the house, build it God's way, according to the blueprints God gave us, and then your house is going to stand. If you go opposite of that, you're just laboring in vain, and a few troubles come along. Some other mindsets come along, and there there it goes. It's gone. See, building marriage with God's blueprints is the point. Also, marriage is a covenant. A covenant is agreement between two parties based on mutual promises and solemnly binding obligations. God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants is summarized in the statement, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be faithful to you, you be faithful to me. So marriage is called a covenant, the most intimate of all human covenants. And the key ingredient in a covenant is always faithfulness. Faithfulness to the covenant vows and obligations. So marriage is also a whole person commitment. God meant marriage to be a total commitment of a man and a woman to each other, it is not two solo performances, but a duet. In marriage, two people give themselves unreservedly to each other. What God has joined together, what does the scripture say? Let no one separate. So God has declared, till death do us part. That is not a carryover from old-fashioned romanticism, but a sober reflection of God's intention regarding marriage. And of course, ultimately, marriage is a divine illustration, an illustration of the love relationship that God established with his people. And thus, the Christian marriage should be an object lesson in which others can see something of the divine human relationship reflected in it, and we find that in Ephesians chapter 5, where we see when we're, a husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church, a wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ, and, and so as our marriages grow and develop and our minds are changed according to, uh, by the word of God, then we will reflect that kind of picture more and more as we put God's word into practice. Now, how are we, the church, to keep marriage honorable? By never allowing its honor to be defiled by sexual violations. So that would be the first thing. The second thing to maintain is a correct behavior in marriage. All right. If you notice a behavior before and in marriage... If you notice the passage of scripture again in Hebrews 13.4, it says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. Let me just stop there. Fornicators and adulterers. Two words that bring defilement into the marriage. Fornication, we get the word uh, pornography from it, at least from its root. One who practices sexual immorality or a fornicator. This is defiling behavior that dishonors marriage in advance of marriage, in advance of the marriage celebration. In other words, before someone gets married. So fornication is what happens when somebody doesn't have a good understanding of what marriage is and how God designed it, and so they act out their sexuality before marriage with someone else. So the, this term really designates those persons who indulge in sexual relationships outside the marriage bond, both heterosexual and homosexual. This includes all kinds of impurity and unnatural vices. So that word is included, and that's it. An all-inclusive words. all kinds of sexual deviant behavior is not to be acted upon even before one gets married. And then, of course, the second word is the word adulterer. Of course, an adulterer, this is defiling behavior that dishonors marriage after marriage has been entered into. This term indicates those who are unfaithful in their marriage vows. So these two adjectives, fornicator and adulterer, covers all who recklessly engage in forbidden practices against the one who sets the boundaries and rules for each... Actually, such relationships, and that is God himself. So this means that it is the responsibility of all of Christ's church to view marriage as honorable and undefiled, and we are never to disgrace this institution by sexual unfaithfulness. So we are to have a correct behavior of marriage before you enter into marriage, and you are to maintain that mindset and behavior while you're in marriage. And so that is what honors the Lord. Of course, there is a third thing that we should maintain, and that is a correct view of God. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at our passage in Hebrews 13, verse 4, you notice the last part of it. It says, "For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge." So illicit sexual sins defile the marriage bed and profanes it. It profanes what God has made holy. Therefore, therefore, a healthy fear must be kept in regard to our Lord God. But anyone who defiles marriage through any illicit sexual encounter will face the certainty of divine judgment some theologians actually point out that this uh verse and others like it will in also include the final judgment that determines human destiny in other words like in Ephesians where it says everyone who is sexually immoral impure or is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, someone who practices this, this this activity and thinks they're getting away with it because that's the choices they made, or that's the road they've been led down, think that they're just going to get a pass on it because everybody else is doing it. But according to Scripture, it could be that very activity, that very sin that sends you into a lost eternity because God is holy and just and righteous and He is the judge. God is serious about fidelity, about purity, about morality. God is a moral being and He created people in His image as moral beings. Consequently, God holds people morally accountable. When humanity rejects God's rule and asserts its own rule, violating and perverting God's fixed order and moral law, then if God's moral laws or absolutes are violated, then, there's always the if and the then, then there are serious consequences. That's, that's what's coming out of the Word of God from, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God is serious about his marriage institution because more than any other picture, it reflects God's faithful relationship to his covenant, to his word, to his people. It has become also a picture of of how Christ loves uh, and is faithful to his church and how the church is to be faithful to Christ and respectfully and lovingly submit to Christ. So see, that is what we ought to be thinking and in our behavior and then having a correct view of God. Now, that brings me to a fourth one. As I consider the passage altogether, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. We have to take that passage of Scripture very seriously and, um, and live it out every single day of our lives. And we're always fighting against sin. We're always fighting against temptation. And uh, through the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God in us, he gives us the ability to resist that temptation and put into practice what is written in the word of God. And it doesn't mean that the temptation goes away because you had victory one time. No, we're going to get bombarded. We're going to get knocked from pillar to post when it comes to temptation. It's going to be at different levels. It's usually going to be when we least expect it. It could be at the time when you think you're the strongest in your Christian walk, and boom, you get hit with it, right? And you have to have your mind come back to this passage. You have to have your mind go back to the Ten Commandments and you have to desire. One of the gr- things that are, is going to help us in temptation, and it's, it's a level of maturity, is that it's, it's loving God. I have to love God more than I love my sin or, and, or love a particular activity. And so we need to also maintain a consistent, and correct con- conduct in, uh, that aligns with who we are and, of course, what pleases God in our marriage, concerning marriage. So the Apostle Paul understood the allure of sexual sin. So in his epistle to the formerly idolatrous Thessalonians, he provides a perspective that is too often neglected in a sexually intoxicated culture like theirs and like ours today. Now, if you look at that passage, you'll find that in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 3, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 7, and then also 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 13, where Paul gives instructions that is Practical for us, where he says, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is how you and I are to conduct ourselves as we go in and out of living our life on the earth, and not only is there unattainable. Mat- uh, maturity that we are to attain, but there is lifestyles and cultural practices that must disappear completely from our life as we grow more and more like Christ. The scripture now gets really very specific as to what that means. The Christians are called to a, a high standard of living. And if you notice in verse number chapter 4, verse number 3 of Thessalonians, or verse number 7 of Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So let me start off by asking and answering some questions. And of course, the first question is, what is sexual purity? Now, that's the passage there in verse number 7. And then there's this the other passage is, directs us to uh, the attention that God's will is our sexual purity. For in First, current, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse number 3, it says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's all over the Bible. You cannot get away from it, and I believe the reason one of the reasons why is because it's so powerful, it's so tempting, it's so easily fallen into as a sin. So, so what is sexual purity? See, God design God's design is that man and woman would exercise their sexuality and experience sexual pleasure in Only one context. And of course that is the marriage relationship. Period. Any sexual impurity dishonors our marriage and defies our marriage bed. It is taking the affection that we vowed to our spouse alone and giving it to another it is a horrible offense against our spouse. And so a definition would be this To be sexually pure is to receive sexual pleasure and satisfaction only from your spouse and to give sexual pleasure and satisfaction only to your spouse. Now, if you are single, this means abstaining entirely from sexual pleasure and satisfaction as long as God keeps you single. In the meantime, you are to pursue the greatest kind of pleasure, and that is, and the greatest kind of satisfaction, and that is knowing God. Matter of fact, you're to do that before you get married, and you are to continue to do that in your marriage. And that is really the key to a happy marriage. I say to young couples, the key to a happy marriage is Jesus Christ and the principles of the word of God that is going to rescue you from all kinds of trails and temptations that you can get dragged down into. You know, it's. it's it, I just want to be honest with you. It's uncomfortable preaching about stuff like this. So direct. I know that. But you know what? I wish someone did it for me, when I was younger, and reinforced with possibly maybe our parents are stumbling around trying to communicate, you know, and, uh, and you know, because you're, you're going to go, the young people, and you're going to go to school, and young people are going to go to college, and they're going to get bombarded with completely the opposite of this. In fact, it's going to be stuff that they're going to be convinced of by people that they may have some respect for, they, they may... Uh, You know, they may be a mentor in their life in some way or another, but nonetheless, believers need to stick to the Word of God and stick to what it means and practice it every day. This is something we ought to practice. All of us have to practice every single day in our culture. And if you are here today and you have fallen into wrongful sexual practices, And, of course, if we go to the Matthew 5 passage, which I'm not doing today, I'm doing it next week because it's going to be two messages on this. If you even think in your mind to have sex without even the act, that's sin. That's pretty serious before the Lord because some of these habits seem impossible to break. But only by the power of God can it be broken, and it will be broken, and it should be broken. That the Lord Jesus Christ actually stands ready to forgive you for for past sins and to enable you to keep free from sin in the future. But of course, in sanctification, we are to cooperate with God concerning what the Word of God says about how I'm to behave and what I'm to think and what I allow into my mind. When I allow my mind to dwell upon, all those things are super important for you and I to have victory over this prevailing sin in our culture. So you must be willing to do your part, then cast yourself on the mercy of God and the strength of God's Spirit to deliver you when that temptation comes. Remember, temptation is not sin, but it will lead to sin if you give into it if you play with it, if you entertain it, if you feed it, you're going to get hooked. There's going to be a point you won't be able to resist anymore. And so in this area, we must, young people, adults, married couples, everyone, need to put into practice uh, this particular principle that says, you shall not commit adultery, and what that principle means in practical implication. Now, here are some, as I close this morning, here are some practical things of, in other words, in how to uh, protect against slipping. So when you're, now this is going to relate to those people who are possibly singled or even those who would eventually get married, that when you are single, going out with someone of the opposite sex on a date, courting, whatever you want to call it. Uh, You have to stay active. You have to stay with others. You don't allow too much time alone with each other. You have to plan that time together so it is filled with uh, absorbing wholesome activity. That's what you have to do to start resisting temptation. And then you can't lower your inhibitions and dull your judgment by or your conscience and let your conscience to be seared in any way by some kind of uh, thing that will deaden your God-given higher faculties of soul. You have to allow your judgment and your conscience and your reason and your self-control not to be short-circuited. Because if you allow that to happen, then you're actually saying, I don't care. And I want the temptation to come on, because I've been desiring and thinking about that for a long time. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit of God to keep self-control. I think another thing is that you, you, you can't allow your mind to be all tied up with sexual thoughts. You have to divert your thoughts onto other interests such as hobbies and, and things you like to do, music, noble endeavors that are going to keep your mind occupied. Of course, the Word of God definitely comes into that. In fact, if you notice the scripture right here, you know it's a, it's a very familiar one. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. you also have to avoid self-defeating behavior. Of course, you can just, for example, somebody says to you, well, can I even look at another person? Yes, you can. Just as long as, you, as you're prolonged looking does not foster unwholesome thoughts. But don't even practice this kind of self-defeating behavior because it's going to end up giving you trouble. Even Job, one of the first books of the Bible, this is what he concluded. I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? This long gaze, he realized that it's going to get, in, get you into trouble. In your mind first, it's going to get you into trouble. So there are various services, uh, actually, that filter out some of the inappropriate web pages and email information that comes across your computer. Uh, and parents, if you don't have it and if you may need it for yourself, there's one of them is Covenant Eyes. All right, And you can go to those websites and download those. I, I think you, there may be a fee or something. Or Safe Eyes are another one. And I think there, there are also newer ones out there. These are a little older. Uh, but these are things you should have on your equipment, on your computer, if just the very fact that you would not be led into temptation. All right, You know how things get on your computer. And you say, well, I didn't even do anything for that to come on my computer. And it did, right? And so if you're going to certain sites, they have these little cookies that connect to your programs, and then they send these kind of messages into your computer, right? Pornography is just a click away. And you can do it in private, and nobody knows you're doing it. But God knows. See, that's the point. God knows you're doing it. And God takes it so seriously, don't think you're getting away with it. It has serious consequences, and we have to take that according to how Scripture communicates it. And, of course, we want to then resist temptation, and this passage of Scripture says, Your word have I treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. So the word of God is going to be a very important ingredient that saturates your mind so you would not... Be led into a sin, and you'll be able to resist the temptation when it comes. And I think the great advice that Paul gives to young Timothy, who's going to, who's going to pastor the church of Ephesus, he simply says, listen, here's good advice. Run. Get out of there. Get away from that person. Just get out. So he says here, but notice he says, now flee from youthful lust." But don't leave a vacuum, pursue something else. Leave something and pursue something. If you leave a vacuum, you're going to get sucked back in. All right. Pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. And with those who call on the Lord from what kind of heart? A pure heart. A heart that is seeking and wanting the will of God in their life. See, that's what we ought to be doing. Flight is usually the best approach to sexual temptation. To stand and resist temptation is possible, but it's much easier and more, it makes more sense to, than to, just to run from it and pursue what you ought to. And then, of course, keep the line between the unmarried state and the married state. It should be drawn distinct and clear. Chastity before marriage is what pleases God. Purity before marriage is what pleases God. Because if you practice it when you're single, you will also practice it when you're married. Right? But don't ever get caught in some illusion that you're never going to be tempted just because you're married to a sexual sin. You will, but you got to be ready for it, right? Don't get caught in that trap. So we have to have a a clear view of marriage as something set apart, something sacred, something special, and a, a right granting a special place of privilege before God. See, that's what the Lord's called us to do. And that's just some of the things that come out of from the rest of the Bible, of the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Next week I'll continue. Let's pray. Lord, may we be in command of our bodies. The Holy Spirit of God has been given to us to for self-control. And may we have the strength to flee from temptation. Not only that we find happiness in this life, but we find our happiness in you. Also, Lord, that we might stand before you unashamed one day because our lives have honored the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for all of us, whether we are married or not, that we may from our very thought life, from our very heart, start thinking the way you want us to think. And then, Lord, when we are tempted, that we would immediately go to what your word teaches and the principles found in the word of God and that we would resist it. And then, Lord, give us the wherewithal to know when to run and when to stay away from things. Give us wisdom in this area, Lord, so we don't get caught in the cultural complications that are going on all around us. And I pray, Lord, in doing that, we may honor your name in our behavior and in our activities with other people. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.